You are back to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Just hours after Governor David Ige issued an order for the military to suspend operations at Red Hill and to begin emptying the fuel tanks, he sat next to Navy Secretary Carlos Del Toro at the December 7th ceremonies marking the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Del Toro had just visited the World War II facility the day before, and while our congressional delegation is leaning on Ige to take swift, decisive steps to ask President Biden to declare a disaster because of fuel found in our tap water, Ige is still thinking about it. He's also still unsure about whether to attend the Western Governors Conference that starts tomorrow in California. Might look bad to leave, not just because of the water contamination, but because we just got walloped by a bad storm and some communities are still digging out of the mess. Should he go or should he stay? That would make Lieutenant Governor Green acting governor. We talked to Governor Ige yesterday afternoon. You know, for the second time in a week, the Hawaii congressional delegation has asked that you ask President Biden to declare an emergency. You know, we are are looking at it and under what conditions we can declare an uh, emergency. You know, there, there is criteria that's required, and clearly this is an unusual situation. So it does involve federal property, which we have very little jurisdiction over. And so part of us looking at it is what benefit that would be and how the situation would change from where we are right today. Well, I think that some feel that there's a sense of urgency. You know, the House lawmakers, you know, are asking to decommission Red Hill. Do you agree with that call? Well, certainly it's Uh, a lot more complicated than that. You know, it is a strategic asset. It is uh, integrated into operations at Pearl Harbor and Hickam. So clearly, a lot of the question is what would the impact be? And there also is the concern about the movement of fuel in a system that we're not certain what the integrity of the system would be. And would there be more risks introduced by Uh, defueling or removing fuels than uh, currently exists, especially in light of the fact that we don't know the source of the contamination at this point. You know, we want to make sure that we can get the best expert to help us evaluate the current situation, hopefully help us identify the source of contamination, uh, and then uh, what the appropriate steps would be to Uh, clear the contaminants from the water system, um, and then um, long-term looking at whether the facility can be um, operated in a safe way, uh, what um, improvements are required to reduce and eliminate the risk of contamination, and certainly about whether there would be long-term alternatives to the fuel storage tanks under Red Hill. I mean, I think all of those questions are are questions that need to be answered. The order does ask or order the Navy to stop immediate operations at the facility uh, and then assemble a team of experts who can help us in defining the way to move forward. We understand that the Navy's asked for more time. Yeah, right now the the current uh, statute provides for the Navy to contest the order uh, within 24 hours. We recognize that the Navy might need more time, and so we're working to discuss what that, how much additional time they would need and if they have 
specific questions about the order itself. Well, the 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 Navy, you know, has promised to be more transparent, uh, but I just get the sense that, uh, you know, after that town hall meeting this past weekend where the admiral said he was confident they discovered the source but didn't really go into detail. So I get the feeling that they're sharing some information with the health department and the Board of Water Supply, but they are not at liberty to share it broadly. I think we all understand the urgency of identifying the contamination, where the contamination is happening, uh, because that's the only way that we can uh, develop a plan to eliminate or uh, mitigate what's happening in the Red Hill shaft. So in our discussions with the Navy, they certainly have a sense of urgency in trying to do that. I think we are all in, as we get more information, trying to determine what would be the best way to definitively uh, identify the source of contamination so that mitigating action can be defined and, and can be undertaken. I mean, I think that the Navy in our discussions has a theory about where the contamination uh, is occurring or how it occurred, um, but they haven't been able to develop a specific plan of action that would allow us to confirm that, in fact, the theory is accurate and, you know, and what the source of contamination is and and how to uh, remove it or mitigate it moving forward. So is it safe to say that they're sharing things with the regulators that is not being disseminated broadly? They did create a crisis action team, and I know the Department of Health is meeting uh, regularly, uh, daily, for the most part, with the Navy. We are getting more timely information. The state has uh, taken water samples and sent it out uh, to get test results. We know that we want to test the water more broadly in all of those communities that complaints have been filed. And that really gives us a better sense of where the water has been contaminated and gives us a better sense of what the source of the contamination might be. You raised your family, you know, in the Pearl City area. So this is, you know, kind of your backyard, you know, Aea, you know, Halava, Aliumanu. Do you Are you comfortable with what the Navy is telling us at this point? Yes, I am. I do know that at the very beginning, it was difficult to get information, and we weren't getting information in a timely manner. I do believe that those bottlenecks have been resolved. They are providing a lot more information to the state of Hawaii. We've discussed how we might be able to get more data. We definitely want to, and we've both been taking samples from the surrounding areas you know, we're committed to pro- providing and sharing the, the data that the state gets as uh, as soon as we, we get it. And we've asked the Navy to do the same. We are uh, asking for better information about the total system, you know, what the, the fueling system looks like, uh, what the water distribution system uh, looks like. So uh, our um, investigators can get a better idea of where the contamination might Uh, have occurred, and I think most importantly going forward about what improvements can be made to reduce uh, the risk. Have they turned up anything in the other communities, you know, in the Iroquois Point area, uh, which is, I think, still under the uh, military's uh, water system? Yeah, so we, um, we haven't, at least in terms of 
Um, you know, we have been testing. Um, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of complaints from that area. So, you know, we're, we're trying to make sure that we understand where the complaints of odor in the water uh, and, and that kind of information is coming from and try and really identify on a map where most of the complaints are. We are working to get water samples from uh, all of the addresses that have called in to say that the water smells or they can see something in the water, you know, and the more that we can get that water tested, the better idea we'll have of what specific uh, geographic locations uh, are experiencing contaminated water, and um, and you know, and that would help uh, inform us about potentially where the point of contamination might be. And then, are you still planning to attend the Western Governors Conference? I do have reservations, and I'm scheduled to participate. Obviously, the weather event and a whole bunch of other things has come up, and you know, we are evaluating my uh, continued participation in that conference versus you know the things that need to get done here at home. Well, if you leave, I know the uh, lieutenant governor becomes acting governor. Are you concerned at all what he might do in your absence? Uh, no, I'm not concerned. I mean, I think, um, you know, Lieutenant Governor is part of the cabinet. He certainly uh, has been informed and he does participate. He's on the calls on the weather emergency. He has been involved with COVID. So I think he's fully aware of most of the issues that are top of mind uh, in the community and within state government. That was Governor David Ige talking about the standoff with the Navy over fuel-contaminated water and what to do about it. As of this hour, we have still not heard if he has decided to cancel his trip to the Western Governors Conference, which starts tomorrow. Support for HPR comes from Honolulu Spa and Wellness at Ala Moana Center and at Kawili Business Plaza in Hilo, a meta spa specializing in advanced aesthetics. Appointments and gift cards at honoluluspaandwellness.com. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the HOMA shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. You are back to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. The Navy's pushback uh, to Governor Ige's Red Hill order raises a question of state versus federal power. Joining us to discuss that issue for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. Yeah, so uh, you really uh, did some digging to try and find out, you know, where the lines are, are drawn with this. You know, we just heard Governor Ige talk about, you know, this is federal land and they're still trying to figure out, you know, what they can do. Right. It's it's not a clear-cut uh, <laughs> subject, um, but basically, so the Governor Ige issued this order to the Navy to suspend all operations at the Red Hill Fuel Facility, put in a water treatment system at the Red Hill Shaft, and ultimately start making a plan to defuel the facility, which is something activists has, have been act- asking for for years. Um, however, the Navy Secretary, when I asked him uh, about this type of demand on Monday, said that he would take it as a request, not an order, um, which 
seems to be a signal that, um, you know, they're, they're not just going to go along with this. And indeed, um, the Department of Health said um, that the Navy has decided to contest this order. Um, what that means exactly is sort of yet to be seen. There's going to be a hearing um, sometime hopefully soon to sort this out. But um, it's kind of a state versus federal issue. Um, and <laughs> um, we're going to be watching this very closely. And you've talked to uh, other legal minds, right, and, and, and looked at uh, mm-hmm. some other cases where states actually uh, took the military to court? Right. So I spoke with two local environmental attorneys, um, Marty Townsend, who is a lawyer and also the former director of the Sierra Club, and Lance Collins, who um, also has done uh, a lot of environmental cases. And both of them said that, um, in their perspective, it is um, clear that the state has the power to tell the military what to do in this case. Um, That's not always the case in state versus federal issues, but because this is Um, a clean water issue and specifically an underground storage tank issue. The federal government basically delegates its um, regulatory authority to the state um, in situations like this. And so the state is basically acting as the federal government um, in terms of permitting and enforcement at Red Hill. Um, So these attorneys I spoke to said that Governor Ige is very much in his right to tell them what to do. Um, the Navy perhaps disagrees. I did ask them for their perspective on this, and they just said the the order is under legal review. Right, and you know we've got this contested case hearing on the permit. Uh, you know that's supposed to expire, and and right. uh, uh, it it seems like the Department of Health is holding you know the card right there. They they you know do they actually give him this permit without additional conditions? Right. The status of that case is sort of unclear to me. So just to um, catch everybody up, the Navy applied for a permit to operate Red Hill for the first time in 2019, and the Sierra Club and Board of Water Supply contested that. So that case is ongoing, all in the background of all this chaos. Um, The Department of Health says that case is still open, um, and ultimately Health Director Libby Char will um, decide whether to approve or reject that permit. Um, but this emergency order is sort of on top of all of that ongoing discussion. Yeah, and we just heard the EPA uh, spokesman, you know, say that they're looking at that work order to see, you know, uh, if something needs to be expedited in light of the recent events here of the last week or so. Right. There are so many agencies tracking this and um, also so many unanswered questions, um, especially for the people affected. It's not even clear, you know, who exactly is affected um, and, you know, how badly their health will be impacted in the short term and the long term. Um, So there's a lot of um, observers and regulators asking a lot of questions and trying to figure out what happened um, and what we can do about it. It is just amazing to see, though, how quickly things have turned. I mean, uh, just this week, the uh, uh, State House uh, sent a letter calling for the decommissioning of that facility. Absolutely. The political uh, winds have really shifted on this issue. Um, just a few weeks ago, I was asking our congressional delegation if they support um, you know, activists and residents' calls to shut this place down, and none of them were supportive of that. Um, They still haven't come right out and said they support shutting it down, but other politicians have. um, City Council Chair Tommy Waters, Councilwoman Radiant Cordero, they're both introducing legislation to um, 
to basically shut the facility down to regulate it perhaps out of existence. Um, and a lot of other public officials are getting on board with, with that kind of thing as well. Yeah, so uh, lots of things that will be playing out here over the weeks and months to come. But thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check from Honolulu Civil Beat. To read the full story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Broadway in Hawaii, presenting Hamilton as part of the new 2022-2023 season at Blaisdell Concert Hall. Season tickets now available at broadwayinhawaii.com. You know, in the statement released by Senator Brian Schatz, Maisie Hirono, and Representatives Ed Case and Kai Kahele yesterday, uh, the delegation uh, also asked the EPA to intervene in this water crisis. We talked to EPA spokesman uh, Alejandro Diaz this morning. Well, the U.S. Navy is the lead response agency, and Hawaii DOH is the lead regulatory agency. U.S. EPA has mobilized three federal on-scene coordinators to Honolulu to provide technical support to the Navy and to work with them, also with Hawaii DOH and the Navy, to provide resources necessary for this response. When did they first arrive? Well, we had two that arrived on Sunday evening, and we had an additional on-scene coordinator uh, arrive on Tuesday. What are they looking at immediately? Because we are still in the emergency response at this point. They're looking to integrate themselves with the Navy and Hawaii DOH response actions, providing support for sampling and providing support for different types of health recommendations uh, that they may need help with and support with the analytical portion of the data that's coming in. And so what can you say about uh, the Navy's initial response? Because a number of uh, officials here and the general public have been critical of the lack of coordination. Uh, EPA believes that the Navy has taken needed actions to respond to the incident, including providing alternative drinking water sources, notifying and relocating affected population, conducting sampling and shutting down the suspected source well and shaft. However, we do understand that this drinking water problem has posed uh, quite the hardship to Oahu residents, in particular in the military community. And we commit to continue really working with our federal and state and also local partners to bring effective and expeditious relief. Can you tell us anything about the flushing of the system at all? Uh, because, you know, we know that they did that initially and then they halted it. And we understand that there have been some conditions that the Department of Health has uh, attached to the, uh, you know, to the OK, flush out those contaminants. Anything you can, can talk about in that area? I haven't been privy to those conversations, so I, I don't have anything to say about that. The Hawaii congressional delegation is asking the EPA to intervene in this case. Uh, what's the EPA's response to that? EPA's involvement with the Red Hill facility has been all the way back through about 2014 and 2015. EPA and Hawaii DOH and the Navy and Hawaii DOH entered into an administrative order and consent with the Navy and Defense Logistics Agency for the Navy in 2015. And it establishes a 20-year timeline for the Navy to address fuel releases and implement infrastructure improvements to prevent future releases. It also requires extensive expansion of groundwater monitoring models to understand groundwater flow and contaminate 
movement and facility risk assessments to understand the potential for releases and impacts on drinking and groundwater resources. Um, however, outside the AOC, Hawaii DOH is the lead regulatory agency for overseeing the facilities. What can you say about the call uh, from our Hawaii delegation for the EPA to intervene in this case? So it's part of that AOC. Um, EPA has been and DOH have been requiring the Navy and Defense Logistics Agency to conduct quarterly testing. Right now, we're looking at you know whether or not that timeline is still relevant given the situation and whether we need more sampling on the short term. However, the sampling that's being conducted now by the Navy um, is data that is being collected more expeditiously than, than quarterly. The sampling that has been done has been more focused on the areas of concern. And so that's something that has been done on a more regular basis. Okay. Has, has there been any kind of a, a, a response or a reply to the congressional delegation? Uh, EPA has not received a request to take a lead on the drinking water contamination re- response. The state of Hawaii uh, continues to be the regulatory authority for the Safe Drinking Water Program, and EPA is providing support to Hawaii D- DOH as a lead. The other night at the town hall meeting, uh, the admiral said uh, that he was confident they had identified the source and how it may have gotten into the system. Representative Kay seemed to think that they were also looking at another uh, theory that maybe there was a problem with the overchlorination uh, in the water system. I mean, is there anything you can add to that? Not from EPA. There's been no conclusions on our part in terms of the source of the contamination. Anybody from that team, uh, their investigators, on-scene coordinators, I mean, explain what their background is. On-scene coordinators are are scientists, but they also have regulatory authority to be able to plug themselves into emergency response situations such as this one. Their specialties are providing environmental resources to responses, such as being able to expeditiously collect samples, being, being able to expeditiously process samples, and being able to interpret data and have the full support of the US EPA offices to analyze and and take a look at data that's coming in very quickly. Do you expect that you'll be, I don't know, making those folks available at all to media for questions? Not at this moment. Anybody else from the EPA coming? Is this it, just this three-member team? It's a three-member team. I'm also a member of, of the team, mm-hmm. um, so I'll be helping out with the response for the time being. Just please note that it's not only the unseen coordinators outside of outside of that our response has been heavily involved with senior management um, talking to the Navy and to Hawaii DOH um, on a regular basis and additionally we have our staff supporting a lot of the the, the data that's come, been coming in and that's being shared from the Navy. That was EPA spokesman Alejandro Diaz talking to us this morning. The San Francisco Region 9 has sent uh, three people to Hawaii to assist in this emergency response to our contaminated water crisis. Yes, we sing. Water is life. Water is life. Water is life.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health Systems, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org. You know, researchers on Kauai are desperately looking for a family of Akikiki, uh, the other pair of breeding um, birds, Carrot and Napua, as well as their chicks, who were named Abby and Eric. This family of honey creepers may be the last of their kind in the uh, Hale Ha area of the uh, Alaka'i Plateau. Now, the population of the wild Akikiki has plummeted. Reacher, uh, researchers estimate that fewer than 50 individuals remain in the forests of Kauai. If this family is found, they will join other Kauai honeycreepers in captivity at the Maui Bird uh, Conservation Center, where they will be safe from predators and mosquito-borne avian malaria. Rosemary Rice is a research assistant with the Keohoe Bird Conservation Center. She joined the rescue mission last week as an extra set of hands. She says the quiet force was in stark contrast to a few years ago when several pairs of Akikiki called this area of the Alaka'i home. It was very sobering, I think, for all of us on the team to be going up there to collect these birds. I know many of the the team members that I was with those few days were there with the egg collection that they did in 2015. And so it was a bit heavy to for them to, you know, see these birds when they were nesting and breeding and having eggs and then having to come back to bring them out of um, this situation, but I think they're optimistic to see the the pair and the two fledglings that are out there. Just because if you don't have optimism in this line of work, then it'll it would be really challenging to do the day to day. But all in all, the team attitude, the crew attitude out there was fantastic. Of every single field biologist I worked with, were very knowledgeable about the species, about the forest. So I feel really good that they're the ones out there doing the collecting. And the search for Carrot, Napua, Abby, and Eric will continue through tomorrow. In the meantime, we have got the song of the Akikiki for you. Here is University of Hawaii professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. Akikiki are small honey creepers with dark gray backs and light buff-colored undersides. Also known as the Kauai creeper, they're an endangered forest bird that's found only on the island of Kauai. If you're lucky enough to see an Akikiki, it will probably be foraging for insects and spiders on the trunks and branches of a native ohia tree. It's become very hard to hear the song of the Akikiki lately, but their more simple call can still be occasionally heard. Their population has been tragically decreasing, especially during the past 15 years, with numbers currently well below 500 birds. Akikihi are another example of the detrimental effects of climate change on a bird species. As temperatures continue to warm, disease-carrying mosquitoes are invading the last high-elevation strongholds for Akikiki in the Alaka'i Plateau of Kauai, areas that were previously too cold for mosquitoes. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. 
know, the U.S. Supreme Court has before it an abortion rights case that is the subject of the Longview Today. Contributing editor Neil Milner joins us this morning. Hi, Neil. Hi. So you're not here to debate the pros and cons of abortion. No, I am not. But you're here to tell us what is happening and well, how we got I, to this point. I'm here to, to especially focus on uh, public opinion regarding abortion because that gets talked a lot about on both sides when it comes to thinking about what's happened with abortion decisions up to now and particularly what's going to happen next. The, the court's likely probably closer to June, late in the term, to come down with a decision on the recent abortion case argument. Uh, it's not, we don't, can't predict the future, although it appears as if that if Roe isn't eliminated, there will be some uh, important limitations put on it. But again, that's speculation. But what I want to talk about is how does the public feel about abortion and its, and the implications of that and what the relationship is between that and how the courts have been thinking about abortion and why there is this difference over the years. So, first of all, one of the really important things to understand public opinion about abortion is that it stayed, it's been very stable for the last, what, almost 50 years since the, since the decision, since the Roe versus Wade decision. There still remains a strong majority of public who supports maintaining Roe versus Wade. Now, I'll talk about the limits of what that means in a second. A recent poll, 52% are in favor, 27% are against it. If you look at the polls over time, they always show about the same thing. There are very few people with extreme views on each side. By extreme views on each side, I mean they want abortion under all conditions. That's less than 10% in a recent poll. And this recent poll was also based on some interviewing. It's, it's reported in 538.com last week, and there's some other things that support it. People who don't want abortion... Under any circumstances, that's also a fairly small amount. And what you have is the majority of people in this country are somewhere in the middle. They support Roe versus Wade in the abstract. They also support the limitations on Roe versus Wade, most of the limitations that have the courts over the years have put on, on, on Roe, not getting rid of the decision but allowing certain kinds of what you can call impediments to abortion to, to exist. They, but that's where the thing gets kind of interesting because what you really have is people, I don't want to say they're muddled because that's really not a good descriptive word. There's just a lot of things going on in most people's minds about abortion and a lot of things not going on in people's minds that those who are ardent opponents and, and uh, proponents of women's right to choose don't talk about very much. So what you really have is a majority of people who, in a general sense, support Roe versus Wade. Up to now, hasn't changed all that much. And in a, in a general sense, support what the court has done since then to limit, to limit abortions. But there are all kinds of things that are a little bit uh, complex in there. Sometimes people favor things that the court or favor limitations that are stronger, most of the time it's, it's pretty close. So that's 
that's the muddled, that's, that's the situation right now. That's kind of reality in terms of the public. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sensitive subject, and, you know, some people don't really want to go there. They don't really want to talk about it over Thanksgiving dinner. No, no, well, that's what, <laughs> when uh, this recent study talked to people about why, you know, how do you feel about it? Uh, in, 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 first of all, it's not a very important issue to most people. That is, if you rank the important people seeing what issues are most important to them, political issues, abortion is only about 4%. So it's for very few is it the absolute deal breaker kind of issue. Why not? Well, one reason is, that, as you say, people don't like talking about abortion. And for a lot of other people, abortion isn't that important in their lives. And a third reason is that it's a complicated issue. I don't even mean morally it's a complicated issue, when of course it is. There's all kinds of stuff about health, about science, and so on, that maybe the most ardent people on each side know about. Um, but it's not that much of an issue for others. So that's the situation. So if you, if you then want to say, what's, what's the relationship between public opinion and the court? That's the public opinion side. Yeah, so uh, what has changed, though, is uh, the makeup of the court. Absolutely right. There have been two big changes over the years um, in regard to uh, the strength of the pro-life movement, one of which is that through technology and so on, they've been able to make the fetus a more visible part of the argument. You can see the fetus and so on. They've also used rights language to argue there. But the more important directly operative thing is that because of an incredibly successful, sophisticated campaign by the conservative legal movement and some demographic luck on who left the court when, the courts have have uh, are, the courts are much more loaded with conservative, anti-abortion people than they were before. Now that's got nothing to do with public opinion necessarily, but that's a strong force, and they're the institutions that that are making the decisions. Right, and they get to pick and choose what cases. Uh, well, they get they to hear, well right? at least at Supreme Court level, <laughs> yeah. they get to pick and choose, mm-hmm. and how they think about public opinion is I don't know. There's certainly on the U.S. Supreme Court right now let's say certainly, probably six justices who are to one degree or another are against, who would like to do something more stringent about Roe versus Wade. That doesn't mean it's going to be a 63 vote. I'm not saying that. So that, you know, you can think about public opinion, but by the same token, here is this institution making decisions. Right. And then, uh, you know, as far as the lower courts too, uh, there have been changes. Along oh yeah, the way they're much more. That, right? Yeah. Oh sure, they um, over the years have become more conservative and and were appointed at a younger level. So let's just say this: it's the one of the arguments that's made. There are two arguments that's made, especially by by pro-choice people now. They say it hurts the court's legitimacy if you rule the wrong way, if you rule against us. And some of the liberal judges have said this. Uh, and the other is this is really going to mobilize a lot of people if they go against Roe. The first argument, you know, the courts historically have stayed very close to public opinion, but not necessarily in the not necessarily in the short run. And um, legitimacy, you know, in this day and age, with the kind of political polarization we have, 
legitimacy is always so polarized anyway that you can't use it, that it's not likely to be as successful, uh, an automatically a successful argument. Mobilization, that's an interesting question. That's an open question. If you have a public that is the way it is now with the majority of people kind of this is sympathetic towards some kind of abortions, um, but you don't know what's going to happen depending on how the court, you know, how the court rules. The idea that it's automatically going to mobilize a lot of people if Roe versus Wade is diminished or gotten rid of, I think that's an open question. That's a because mobilization is a very complex issue. It often doesn't involve just one issue. And on the other side, it may be. The, it may the, the Republicans are maybe mobilize more. So you have me back in a few months <laughs> in the spring uh, to talk about this. Some of which I'll be able to talk about with more confidence. But certainly the mobilization thing is a long term issue. Right, right. So we'll have to look for a decision this summer and be probably really mid June could be earlier, but yeah. probably not be interesting to read the decisions but uh, thank you so much neil yeah you're welcome take care we have been talking to our contributing editor neil milner he joins us every other week for a segment that we call the long view and that's a wrap for today's show i'm Catherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 